September 28th. It is the birthday of the great Chinese sage, Confucius. It is a day commemorated across much of East Asia, including South Korea, where on that very day in 2013 I sat at a tea house in Seoul, utterly unprepared for the fate that was about to greet me in the doorway. Suddenly, I stood still, unable to move, as happens when we are faced with a vision that appeals not to our eyes only, but requires a deeper kind of perception and takes possession of the whole of our being. There, appearing in the doorway amidst a hundred everyday sights and objects, was the girl whose name, though I had never heard, I felt I had known since before the universe was born. It was indeed love at first sight. But when weeks later I finally worked up the courage to ask her out, her expression fell as she raised herself from the museum bench and pensively turned away. It's difficult for a Confucian girl like me, she finally replied. Her response would both plague and inspire me for years to come. At the time, I knew nothing of Confucius or the Confucian tradition in South Korea. We continued to see one another. Until one accidental spring day in 2014, we met for what would be the last time. We rendezvoused that day at Iwa Women's University, where she was a student. I remember we spoke of love, and I can still hear her suddenly and dramatically exclaiming, "What is love?" Partly in humor, and partly with what seemed a genuine sense of existential urgency. Neither of us having an answer. We sat for a few moments in silence, letting the questions sink in. My friends, it doesn't matter how it ended, only that when it did, philosophy quickly became for me something it is today rarely recognized as being—an inquiry, compelled by passion and conducted in creative desperation, into the whole point of it all. This is philosophy for the people. I'm your host Nathan Wiley here with producer Jessica Cook. Today we discuss women and Buddhist philosophy, engaging Zen master Kim Irop, which is the title of a remarkable book authored by today's guest, director of Asian studies and professor of philosophy and religion at American University, Dr. Jin Y. Park. Dr. Park, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Park. I begin this way with a personal story of romantic love in the context of South Korea's Confucian culture, in order that we might be reminded just how profoundly affecting love can be. But even more, I wanted to put into play some of the central themes of your book, Women and Buddhist Philosophy, a book in which personal love stories are granted a special kind of philosophical status. That's true. I think that some people might think this is strange, and that is especially the case if we really look at the Western philosophical tradition. We have a tendency to make a distinction between philosophy, which is about truth, logos, and literature, a story, fiction. On the other hand, if we really think about where do we get 
the ideas and inspirations for our philosophy, if not in our life itself. And as you just mentioned, love is one of the most passionate and inspiring experience in human life. And it is true, I believe, that everybody becomes a philosopher when they are in love. And some people just to kind of let go of our experience. But some people like Kimidia write down their experiences and help us to understand what we really go through when we experience love and um, when love makes us to think about what life is all about. Absolutely. Uh, I certainly wrote down my experience uh, writing from out of the wound I was left with in the wake of my romantic heartbreak, <laughs> which is how, in fact, I first encountered your work, Dr. Park, oh, because <laughs> in the wake of that heartbreak, I found myself pouring through books mm -hmm. and articles and essays, learning everything I could about South Korean culture, including and uh -huh. especially Confucianism, but also Korean shamanism and Buddhism as well. So these materials, including your many texts on Korean Buddhism, really mm -hmm. aided me in my journey of making meaning and finding value in what was the defining experience of my two years living in South Korea. And so I, I ended up writing this, this monograph, The Opening, which consists of a, a series of 12 reflections on love in, in what was my oh. attempt at answering the question posed in the story that I just relayed. What is love? Now, the way I think about it, it, it was not upon writing a senior thesis in philosophy or receiving a degree in philosophy, but rather it was upon writing the opening that I consider myself to have become something of a, a philosopher. As you put it, everyone becomes a philosopher when they are in love. Uh, yeah. I mean, while I was... While I was listening to your introductory story about your your love experience, actually, all a lot of different thoughts just to just rush it into my mind because I went to Yonsei University, which is right next to Ihua Women's University. I saw all the experience that I had during my college years in Korea suddenly kind of arose in my mind and it was an interesting experience even though brief <laughs> yes yes that is precisely the experience i had while reading women in buddhist philosophy it was almost as though i was reading at times my own story in mm. my love story with which i opened <laughs> the beloved was a student of art mm. history studying at as i mentioned iwa women's university the protagonist of your story kim irop also had many love stories to tell and was also a graduate of Iwa Women's University. That's right. However, Irop graduated roughly a century before my story begins and roughly 32 years after the university was founded in 1886. Could you maybe kick us off, uh, Professor, by talking about some of the life experiences that Irop recounts of her childhood leading up to her education at Iwa Women's University. Uh, sure. You must know her life story very well. Now you read the book. But Europe had an enormously interesting life stories, actually. So she was born in 1896 in the current contemporary northern part of Korea. 
And her father was a Christian pastor and the first generation Korean Protestant pastor. Uh, and he was a really very, very faithful uh, pastor. And at a certain point in her writing, Idiop identified her father as the most faithful Christian in entire Korea. And her mother was also a very faithful Christian. So she grew up as a, a very faithful Christian. And then the, her education was also influenced by this uh, Chris, uh, the Christian uh, influence in Korea. So the, in Europe's time, early 1900, in Korea, women were girls were usually not educated. People thought that, why, why do you educate women? They are supposed to go uh, get married and take care of uh, a family, right? But then Edop's parents were really adamant to educate Edop like any other uh, male child. So she was educated in uh, um, near Pyongyang. Uh, and then after that, she uh, moved to Korea to attend uh, schools at the Ihua Women's University. Right? So throughout her education, she was influenced by Christianity. But at certain point in her teenager year, she began to have doubts about Christian doctrines. And I think that these doubts are not uh, something special, but I believe any Christian could have these kind of questions. Like if God created a world, why there are so many bad things in the world? If there are heaven and hell, and if you are in heaven and you are uh, family members are in hell, can you really enjoy heaven, and so on and so forth. But whenever she had this kind of doubt about Christian doctrines, her father, being a, such a faithful Christian, told her, no doubt about God. That means your faith is not strong enough. Pray, that is the answer. But, well, for a young girl, to get that kind of response from her father did not satisfy her kind of uh, desire to know deeper about Christianity. So eventually it backfired. She, she confessed that sometime in her teenager year, she lost her faith um, in Christianity. So for a time until later when she found Buddhism, she lived without any religion. But she was the first generation uh, Korean woman who actually received the uh, public education. At the beginning, you mentioned about Confucian tradition. And in Confucian tradition, again, women are not educated. And if you are born in a kind of upper class Yangban family, perhaps you would learn how to read and write as a woman, but that's about it. But this uh, new woman, this uh, the Kimidop's uh, generation, was the first generation of women who really received the formal uh, public education, which was available in Korea uh, because of this modernization process. So in a way, she is an interesting figure in the sense that she was one of the first generation Korean uh, Protestant uh, Christian, and she is the first generation of Korean women who were able to receive a public education. And... And then she was very talented, so eventually she became a writer. And after she graduated Iwa Women's University, she also went to Japan to continue her study. Even though her stay in Japan was brief, but definitely she was very much influenced by 
feminist activist in in Japan. The Japanese knew women's at the time. So as soon as she came back to Korea, she began to actually actively engage with the women's movement in Korea. You mentioned that Irop was both a first-generation Christian and a first-generation feminist in Korea. And, and this was at a time when Korea was undergoing a major political transformation, mm-hmm. the last and longest of the Korean dynasties, the Joseon dynasty, which lasted for five centuries strong, had finally fallen at the end of the 19th century, right around the exact same time that Irop was born. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the 500-year Joseon dynasty was a Confucian dynasty, and so no doubt Confucian values were still deeply ingrained and prevalent in Korean culture, as they continue to be to this day. What is the relevance for Europe's story of having been born and raised a deep in a deeply Confucian cultural context? Yeah, it's a very good question, and then you propose a very complex uh, question in that context. Uh, because, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Joseon Dynasty, which was the last dynasty and the longest dynasty in the history of 5,000 years of Korea, was a Confucian dynasty. In other words, uh, before Joseon Dynasty, 1392, then the Korea Dynasty was really very much dominated by Buddhism, and Buddhism was very popular. But Joseon Dynasty, in, during the Joseon Dynasty, Confucian literacy were the one who had power and who tried to suppress Buddhism. Now, in the time, obviously, Korean tradition was very much Confucianized. So there is a kind of article or book called The Confucianization of Korea, which really demonstrated how around the 17th century, every aspect of Korean culture and tradition really became very, very much Confucian, right? which obviously means a patriarchal system. Patriarchal, patriarchal, patrilineal, patrilocal. Now, Iliop's case is interesting because, as we mentioned before, he, she was a daughter of a Christian pastor, and her parents were very, quote-unquote, westernized. So they were willing to teach their female child like a male child. In that context, perhaps Iliop did not feel, did not experience much of those Confucian discrimination at home. However, and then the moment around 1920, there was like a moment, a couple of years, 1920, 1921, 1923, around this kind of couple of years, when this new idea of modernization and equality of human beings, gender equality, these kind of concepts became very popular, right? So the so-called intellectuals, they try to emphasize this gender equality. Now, I believe the kind of worst part for Kim Miryeop in this context of a gender equality issue or gender discrimination was later part when she realized that, for example, Korean intellectuals and male intellectuals especially they supported this female feminist when they talk about gender equality as a kind of a, the characteristics of modern society. But when these, uh, these new women live the life like that, when they really demand freedom, 
these male intellectuals, they in a way that kind of criticize them, their lifestyle, right? So on, on, on the one hand, these male intellectuals, they kind of claim for gender equality. And on the other hand, they kind of make fun of these female figures who actually demand and live the life like that. So that was one of the, I believe, the one of the kind of a really painful disillusionment from Gimirov's perspective. And she did write about it in one of uh, her essays that those male thinkers and male writers who claim to be a kind of a, a liberal who demand uh, gender equality, they also criticize when we women trying to actually demand gender equality in life. So it sounds good. They're willing to pay lip service to these ideas, but when the rubber meets the road, they recoil. Exactly, yeah. Going hand in hand with gender equality and the ideas that were making their way into Korean society at the time is individualism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Irop writes at one point, I have become an earnest individualist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Individualism. What a beautiful and decent concept it is. Mm-hmm. Only the new individualism will keep me alive and let me complete myself from now on. What does she mean here by new individualism? Yes, great point. Um, I think many people, actually, even in Korean scholarship, they miss this kind of a transitional point in Europe's uh, life and in, in the evolution of Europe's philosophy. So... There is an individualism which we usually um, experience in modern society. Right? I mean, Confucian society or East Asian society in general is not an individualistic society traditionally. It's a collectivist society. In other words, your position, your identity is defined by your relationship. You are somebody's daughter, you are somebody's mother, something like that. But this modern concept, individualism, kind of came to Korea, and people began to talk about it. This is individualism. However, so Iriak, as a new woman, obviously at the beginning, she kind of praised this individualism and trying to kind of demand this individualism. But as she went through this kind of disillusion, uh, about this, uh, um, the fake, quote unquote, fake male in- intellectuals who could, who demand the gender equality, but on the other hand, who who do not allow women to live their life. She realized that that kind of individualism is not real individualism, and in this kind of a new individualism, you see that Europe is really searching for a certain kind of freedom of the spirit. Right? So that's why there she said, well, I can sit down and be by myself and all the, all the things that is in my mind be, uh, becomes calm down, right? Come down and I begin to find myself. So this new individualism is not just uh, being alone, being independent on surface, but new individualism is really finding yourself as an individual who has agency. Right? And I think this is a moment where Kim Miriam, as a social activist, feminist social activist, turns to, into a gradually a religious thinker. So it is more like find your true self and prove it to yourself first. 
instead of talking about individualism as a kind of fragmentary concept of the self. This new individualism is more like how much you prove to yourself the authenticity of your existence without being reliant on the external established values or people's recognition or evaluation of yourself. Yes, the new women of whom Iro was a leader had a kind of declaration. We, the new women and new men, who want to do away with all conventions, traditions, and concepts, and who are determined to bring attention to a new and fresh concept of life, cannot but strongly resist, among other things, the traditional morality of sex, which has ignored our personalities as well as our individual characteristics. So, as you mentioned, Professor, the new women emphasize social and political involvement over against their roles as mothers and wives. But they also emphasized, going hand in hand with social and political activism, sexual liberation from patriarchal Confucian sexual norms and conventions. For example, arranged marriages, stigma on divorce, gender inequality, and the like. How did Irop's new and fresh concept of life and sexuality find expression in her personal life? Could you talk a little bit about Kim Irop's love story or love stories? Wow. <laughs> okay, so um, let me first kind of address a little bit about the passage you just uh, cited and then go to Irop's love story. So I think the passage you just read is important in the sense that first she mentions both the new women and new men, right? So what she's uh, uh, trying to do is not just liberating women, but then liberating human beings from this kind of uh, old values, and especially that old values that she wants to uh, break away from is very much related to sexuality. Now, this is one part which is very difficult for the new women to deal with, because they demanded a sexual liberation in 1920s Confucian Korea. Just imagine. So when I first read Gimme Up, I thought that, wow, how was it possible that in 1920 Korean women talk about sexuality? Even the end of 19, uh, 20th century, the sexuality is something is very much a kind of taboo in Korean society. But Gimme Up and the new woman had to deal with this sexuality issue because, as she mentions several times, this sexuality is a visible form of gender discrimination in Confucian society, right? The idea of chastity and that women's role is defined by being a wife and mother and without really considering individuals' kind of characteristics, their, their desire for the life they want to live. So that was a very important part. But at the same time, because Kim Mi-ryeop and the new women demanded sexual freedom, they had to pay a high price for a long time. Korean society obviously would not accept them, that kind of a, a claim. And until actually almost at the end of the 20th century, the new women in Korean society were considered as something very bad girl, talking about the sexual freedom. Even they were called as a high society called girl. Um, but what they were thinking about was not this kind of uh, licentious uh, kind of uh, life of sex. They wanted to 
have a kind of agency once again about their own life, which include the kind of ownership of their own sexuality. So Kim Iryap had uh, several well-known uh, love stories. She married once, and then she eventually divorced, and then almost the end part of her first marriage, she had a relationship with a, a writer named Im Nowal. And then there was a kind of situation which you must remember uh, that she had, had to break up with him. And then uh, later she had a relationship with Pak sung -woo. Uh, this relationship was very short, less than a year, but it had a permanent, very strong impact on her. Uh, she learned a lot about uh, Buddhism from him and then obviously love, about love as well. So, um, you know, it's interesting that, uh, as you mentioned from the beginning of this, uh, our interview, that the love story became a really one of the major theme of her philosophical and Buddhist text, right? So she wrote this book, uh, Reflection of a Zen Master, uh, as a book to promote Buddhism. Right? So when I first read this book, I thought, oh my God, I'm reading a book by a Buddhist nun and all I'm reading is her love story. That's an interesting case. But all this happened before she became a Buddhist nun, so she never violated a precept. Of uh, but or bro broke her celibacy, but it's uh, it's interesting uh, to see that how Gimidiab, as a Buddhist nun and as a very well respected uh, Zen master, by the time she published this book, she reflected upon very intimate relationship of her life and trying to make sense out of it. So I think that the love story for Gimidiab, among others, is an occasion in which she her emotions or, and her intellectual capacity uh, functioned in full capacity and she's trying to make sense out of those experiences, right? So then she can find the meaning of her existence. Yes, it is a philosophy that leads with love and, and all that it entails. Hope, mm -hmm. heartbreak, joy, loneliness, despair. Mm -hmm. In fact, love, loneliness, and despair are themes that are inextricably bound together and almost always at play in Irop's writing. She describes herself in her 20s, for example, as a woman whose heart mm -hmm. is fully occupied with loneliness. So by leading with love, Irop's philosophy is one that highlights some of the deepest dimensions of mm -hmm. human existence. That's right. And then perhaps the her reliance on love also has much to do with what you just mentioned, her loneliness. Because her, when she was a child, she experienced death of her siblings. And then soon she experienced the death of her mother. And then later, her father died when she was still a teenager. So before she graduated Iwa Women's University, she really became a kind of very, the only person in her family to survive other than her, uh, the stepmother, right? And then uh, her stepsister. But her stepsister also died 
when she was around 20 or so. And there is a, a short story she wrote about the death of her stepsister. Uh, um, she, her stepsister was very young and she died. And then because of the illness and on the way back to, to her home, she, she asked God, what kind, of, what kind of bad thing could such a little girl have done to die at that young age, right? And that kind of thing, how would you explain? And as human beings, experiencing a death of your family members is an ultimate moment for us to think about the life, the meaning of existence. And because Iryab experienced this kind of uh, the ultimate situation number of times before she reached 20, I think her loneliness becomes uh, very much part of her existence. And then when she fall in love with somebody, I think the loneliness and, uh, and then the feeling of uh, being together with your lover combined together gives her really a strong experience of love more so than any other people who might have other family members, still have parents, and so on and so forth. We have seen uh, again and again in this podcast how philosophy grows out of and, and really begins with loss, whether self-loss, the death of a loved one, or the loss of almost an entire family in Europe's case. Do you think that Europe's loneliness was part of what compelled her to ultimately join a Buddhist monastery? Well, um... I wouldn't say that she joined the monastery because she was lonely. Even though her case of loneliness was kind of exceptional, but there are many people in the world who, who experience such a tragic life, right? And then there are people, there are orphans, not everybody joined the monastery. Right? Some people say that Kim Iryap joined the monastery because she failed in her love. And I said, well, there are a lot of people then who have to join the monastery, right? I mean, is there, are there any people who never fail the, the love, uh, love experience? So in other words, Kimirab's uh, joining the monastery was her own way of finding meaning in her existence. It, uh, it's her religious pursuit and ultimate way of devoting her entire life uh, in her search for freedom. So obviously there might, there might be certain kind of contribute, uh, contributing factors that facilitate in some way Kimiryap to join the monastery, but I don't think there is a one factor which actually make her join the monastery other than her own search for truth and freedom and meaning of existence. Nevertheless, that didn't stop her from having a reputation in Korea as a failure, someone who failed in love and so absconded to the mountains to practice meditation as a a mode of escape. Right. And then I think that is one of the narrative we should really uh, get rid of. In other words, uh, in one of the chapters of my book, Women in Buddhist Philosophy, I talk about three new women, their lives and their death. Kim Iryeop and uh, Nahesok and Kim Myung-soon, these are liberal new women who quote-unquote face a tragic uh, the ending. The Nahesok had to die, on the, uh, she died on the street after she divorced and so on. And Kim Myung-soon also died, died in a mental hospital. 
And people say that Kim Il-yeop's life was tragic because she had to join the monastery. And then I, I don't think this is a fair evaluation of one's life. Right? We we cannot judge one's life either success or failure by simply looking at one ending or some some kind of action one uh, one took in their lives. Life has a lot of different kind of turns and aspects. So that's another kind of very much uh, social narrative, right? To think that success in life, it has a this and this and this kind of form. If you do not fit into this box, your life is failure. And we should really try to challenge such a, such a kind of a normative form, form of judging and evaluating one's life. Yes, in your book, you demonstrate quite decisively that contrary to her reception in Korea, there was not a rupture between her activist years as a writer and her monastic years as a Zen nun. Rather, you show that there is continuity. Now, the case for rupture might be that, well, she never wrote explicitly on women's issues after entering the monastery, so therefore she must have abandoned them. But you argue, to the contrary, that there is continuity between her feminist activism and her practice as a Zen nun, and that she did indeed continue to speak to and for women's issues in her later years. Uh, Yes. So, as you mentioned, that the many scholars in Korea, they thought that Kim Il-yup's life has two distinctively different phases. The first was a feminist activist before she joined the monastery. And after she joined the monastery, she became a Buddhist uh, nun. And in between, there's a rupture, clear rupture, because people do not see, didn't see any kind of connection between these two lives. And it might be, that's possible to think, it's possible to think that way, because on surface, these are very, two very different uh, lifestyles. As a feminist activist, she demanded sexual freedom. As a Buddhist nun, she maintained celibacy. But, as I mentioned in my book, I think the continuity is clear. As a a feminist activist writer, before she joined the monastery, she was looking for a way to live a life of freedom. She wanted to go beyond, break out of Confucian constraint on women. And at a certain point, she realized that just changing the social norms is not enough. It's not sufficient. And she became a Buddhist nun, and now she's in the religious world. And there, she wants to be a free being, not only in terms of a patriarchal social system, but as a human being, as a finite being, she wanted to find a freedom. So these two worlds, uh, feminist activist and then uh, Jan Buddhist nun, are not, in the case of Gimidia, two separate worlds, but they are two different ways of trying to find a freedom in her life. And yes, people point out that uh, Gimidia did not explicitly talk about women's uh, uh, movement or women's liberation or feminism after she joined the monastery. And I don't think that that should be the uh, any kind of uh, evidence that Kim Il-yup was not interested in her search for freedom. I think that now as a Buddhist nun, her life itself becomes the very kind of evidence of her search for freedom. And 
by writing the story of herself, she makes a woman's life visible. In her books, we see her life, her friends' lives, and so on and so forth. And she makes women's life visible. And I mentioned in my book, not all the fights are fought、uh, on the street. You can go down the road and do the protest on the street. You can write about women's liberation, or you can live the life of the free women. So then you can demonstrate other women that、uh, what it means to lead a life as a free individual. And actually, that was the meaning of "give me up" to my parents' generation. I discovered "give me up" as a Buddhist scholar. I was looking for a kind of women's issue to deal with, and I'd like to learn about the women in Korean modern Korean Buddhism. And I, finally, I discovered Gimedia. Whereas my parent generation, my mother's generation, whether you are a man or woman, they knew about Gimedia. Actually, there is an interesting episode、um, uh, when uh, after I published the translation of Gimedia's book. The Korean community here in Washington D.C. they threw me a kind of small book party. There was a small book party that、uh, only those who I know、uh, were invited. But people, so about twenty people or twenty-five people、uh, were invited. But anyway, the organizer、uh, announced the event, a newspaper, just to let people, Korean people, know that the Kim Il-sung's work was translated into English. And there came a. An old、uh, woman, woman, to the、uh, party, and none of us knew who she was. So at a certain point, we asked her, "Oh, so welcome to this party. How did you learn about this?" And she said that, "Well, Kimida was an, a kind of ideal person in my generation, and we all admire her because she lived a life which we couldn't as a woman." So when I heard that Kim Il-sung's book was translated, I thought that I should come to this and kind of meet these people to talk about Kim Il-sung. So that tells us the kind of influence Kim Il-sung had on Korean women,、uh, even though she didn't write about explicitly a women's issue after she joined the monastery. Exactly, she didn't write explicitly on women's issues, but she nevertheless continued to speak directly to those issues by telling love stories, as you mentioned,、mm-hmm. including both. Her own love stories, as well as those of her associates and friends, <laughs> and she first began telling these love stories in 1960 in her book *Reflections of a Zen Buddhist Nun*. Now, remarkably, when she entered the monastery, she was instructed by her master to stop writing, which must have been very difficult to do for an accomplished writer like Irope. But when she finally starts writing again, her debut text is *Reflections of a Zen Buddhist Nun*, in which she presents her own life story as a way to discuss Buddhist philosophy. And these stories include, you write, the lives and deaths of her family, the practice of Christianity, and her intimate relationships with romantic ex-partners. So these diverse topics, you write, along with Irope's unique way of delivering Buddhist philosophy. Mark her book as an alternative form of philosophizing and understanding Buddhism in the milieu of daily existence. Could you unpack for us a little bit more in what this alternative form of philosophizing consists?、Um, yes, that is one of the main kind of theme that I'd like to、uh, engage with, and I'd like to convey to the reader in that book. 
In other words, when you talk about philosophy, uh, especially in the Western tradition, philosophy is about truth. Philosophy is about logos. Philosophy we do with logic. Right. So, and then the daily existence uh, should be should become an abstract concept in order to be considered and discussed as philosophy. And I don't think this was the case from the beginning of Western philosophy. If you go back to the ancient Greek philosophy, you see a lot of stories that conveys philosophical ideas. But I think this kind of way of doing philosophy through logic and an abstract concept became a dominant form of philosophizing starting sometime modern period, science, objectivity, and so on and so forth. And I don't think that this should be the only way of doing philosophy. After all, we live the life, and out of our life experiences, we create philosophy. I mean, if there are, there are no experiences, where would you bring the, your philosophy? So I, in my book, I proposed an expression called narrative philosophy. In other words, that by talking about our life experiences, in a way, we begin to find the meaning and values of our existence. Um, so, I mean, think about this. Our existence itself, daily experience, isn't, there's not something special, right? You get up in the morning, you have a coffee, you take a shower, you have a breakfast, you go to work, have lunch, and come back, dinner, and go to bed. This is the life of everybody, in fact. Now, the question, philosophical question is, how do we find the meaning and values out of this seemingly mundane experiences? Are there any spe- special experiences that, that are qualified for philosophizing? There are no special uh, experiences, right? So in other words, the capacity to do philosophy is not in the experience itself, right? But in the way we, we understand, we approach the, philo- the, the experiences. Yes, you write in the introduction to Women in Buddhist Philosophy that you are attempting to move beyond current Buddhist scholarship on gender and asking whether women's ways of engaging with Buddhist philosophy in particular and with philosophy in general differ essentially from the familiar patriarchal modes of philosophizing. And your answer to that question is that they are indeed quite different modes of doing philosophy where one mode traditionally centers truth as universal logos, eternal and unchanging, the other recognizes the original identity of logos with mythos, and accordingly begins with and centers the stories from which ideas emerge, rather than the ideas themselves abstracted from their proper context in lived experiences. So the model of narrative philosophy that you present centers love, it centers despair, and it centers, importantly, creativity, particularly the act of creating meaning out of the potentially devastating accidents that inevitably befall all of us in life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think that is the kind of core thing that we, one of the core that we'd like to think about when we say we do philosophy or philosophize, right? So in other words, when we think about meaning and values, we tend to think that they are given, okay? Something is meaningful, other things are not meaningful. 
read a read Aristotle is meaningful action, whereas uh, eating an apple is just eating an apple. I don't think that is the case. In other words, meaning and values are not given, but we constantly create those meanings. And at a certain point, we make them permanent, then there is a danger, in fact. Right? But so you ask, how then do we create a meaning? So when I eat an apple, what is the meaning of it? The meaning of an action is actually based on individual's interpretation. I'm not going through too much just a relativist position here, but what it means is that the eating of an apple can have multiple different meanings depending on the context. And also, how we create a meaning out of these simple activities is based on how much references we have. And here is the important thing about uh, reading a lot of different kind of uh, philosophers, for example, or literary work. And mixing them together, we constantly create a capacity to create a meaning in our existence. Right? Think about this. When you have a breakfast, you have a coffee, egg, and, and bread, toast, for example. Do you know which part goes which part of my, your body? No, we do not know, right? But these things combined together, we kind of sustain our life. Our physical body earned nutrition out of them. And our mental body is the same, right? Our mental world is constantly being nourished by our kind of activities of thinking through the previous philosophers, uh, writers, and uh, social issues. And then we broaden our perspective so that we can create a new meaning in a broader uh, context. And that is, I think, the training of uh, philosophy. So in other words, philosophy education is not just uh, to read Heidegger and memorize Heidegger, right? And see what kind of issues Heidegger dealt with and why he did that. What kind of issue he may have had and what are the contexts that made her think that way and why he, she thought that way. How I might understand the situation, right? So that is a kind of process of creating meaning and values. Uh -huh, yes, you write that by telling stories of our experience, we give a new mm -hmm. structure to our experience, mm -hmm. and we create new meaning to the events of our lives, however mundane, like eating an apple. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. typically, our sort of default values and meanings that we inherit reflect those of the power structure mm -hmm. in which our philosophical practice is embedded. Right. So what about today? Why is this alternative mode of philosophizing that Iro exemplifies so important today in the context of the male-dominated modes of philosophizing that continue to characterize philosophical practice in the academic milieu? Yes, exactly. And I think this is exactly very much relevant to what we experience in our society today, right? So what is called the values and the meanings in our society uh, have been created, as you mentioned, by those who have power. And it, the, those values uh, have been imposed on us. However, we are all different, right? So the kind of uh, things that are important for me do not have to be important to you, right? So that is why narrative is important. Black lives matter. What does that mean? They have their own life experiences and that should be recognized and understood within that context without being kind of 
judged and uh, digested from the values imposed on them from different perspectives. So women's life in patriarchal system has been evaluated by this kind of patriarchal values, right? And these patriarchal values are not based on women's experiences. And that's why that the people say that women cannot do, do philosophy, right? Because they are so emotional. They always talk about the families. They always talk about their love affairs, right? But if their experiences of, with a family, that's their narrative, and they must have their own way of creating the value of their existence and meaning of their existence. And especially in our society, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, I think narrative, narrative philosophy is especially important because different groups, different individuals have different kind of life story. And what we need to know is not giving or kind of deciding which one has a permanent value, but how we create a value out of these different life experiences. And that is, I believe, what is called diversity and inclusion. And our lives become richer when we know more life stories, right? Because different life stories tell us, show us the thing that I never experienced, perhaps I never even thought about. But then based on someone else's life experiences, I began to think about my experience from different perspectives. Right. So if we have this experience, you have one color, for example, blue. And if you put blue with the white, the blue color changes. Right. If you place blue in red, then the blue color also changes. Right. So in other words, based on where you how you contextualize it, the experience can have different meaning. And out of that different experience, we become our uh, we open up our mind. We open up our values. So then we can be more comprehensive about our, in our understanding of human existence and values. Right. We need to keep track of where ideas come from. They come from lived experiences, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. falling in love. Even men like me could be accused of investing their writing with too much emotional content, too many philosophically uninteresting stories. <laughs> But there are many ways, as you pointed out, of doing philosophy, narrative philosophy included. But in the context of current graduate training, for example, students like me are not exactly encouraged to philosophize using as a point of departure stories like the one I used as a point of departure for this conversation. Yes, you just mentioned about graduate training. And I think, yeah, that's very important. Exactly what you just mentioned can happen and has been happening in graduate education. So in a way, we, we need to really open up our uh, philosophy education to a broader, broader context. I agree 100%. I mentioned the monograph that I wrote in the wake of my romantic devastation. And if I'm honest, that monograph contains far more substance and truth than anything I have ever written for credit in a university philosophy course. Exactly. I think one of the things uh, that is required to do a narrative philosophy is a self-reflection. If you uh, kind of make it a habit of yourself to constantly think about the, how you evaluate something, how you create a meaning of something, then you will earn the capacity to reflect upon your ways of thinking, right? and how you react to the to current situation, right? Instead of just having this truth, 
either wear mask, mask, do not wear the mask. This is not a kind of a yes, no question, right? Think about why you should or shouldn't. And that's what the philosophy should teach to the student, right? Not the answer, yes or no, but then why yes or why no. That is important part. And that comes from self-reflection. Yes, which facilitates a kind of self-awareness. Exactly, yeah. To have self-awareness, you, of course, have to include the self in your reflection and not simply Mm -hmm. relegate it to a kind of tertiary status, if not banish it from philosophy altogether as contingent and therefore irrelevant. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk Mm -hmm. about socially engaged Buddhism. So Buddhism at the dawn of the 20th century came under attack for its perceived tendency to disengage from social issues, favoring instead withdrawal into a monastic life of meditation. You write that at the time, there was a movement, Minjun Buddhism, or Buddhism for the people, which sought to bring Buddhism into the milieu of daily life for the general public. Buddhism, the indictment went, being siloed off from the rest of the world, was failing to recognize social upheavals and tend to the world's suffering. So Minjun Buddhism, Buddhism for the people, sought to make Buddhist doctrines adoptable by everyone. Its advocates claimed, you write, that the goal of Buddhist practice was to eliminate suffering and that Buddhism should deal with all the sources of suffering, including social, economic, political, as well as mental and psychological. And you raise two important questions that Buddhism for the people raises for Buddhism generally. The first is whether Zen Buddhist practice and spiritual cultivation in general require a secluded space away from society. And second, does spiritual cultivation necessarily lead to an awareness of social problems? Now, Dr. Park, I'm curious how you would answer these questions today. Right. Um, so Zen Buddhism um, is an interesting case in, if we see that in the context of uh, uh, social engagement. It, uh, the criticism about Zen Buddhism being asocial uh, immersed in the Western Buddhist scholarship starting from 1980s and the 90s and then, and then even nowadays, uh, in a way that the Western scholarship saw the Jan Buddhist idea of enlightenment, self-cultivation is totally individualistic. And my students always say that the Buddhism is individualistic uh, religion. And I said, oh God, in Buddhism, everything is interconnected. How can it be individualistic? And they still think that it is individualistic because of Buddhism aiming for the uh, enlightenment of an individual. I think this, the, here comes a, a kind of distortion that took place uh, uh, about the Buddhist uh, kind of teaching, right? So you ask whether Jan Buddhism, uh, Jan Buddhist practice requires sacred space. I mean, the textbook answer is no, right? I mean, that is basically Mahayana Buddhism saying that, well, joining the monastery perhaps is the best way to practice. But that does not mean that you should leave the society and actually join the monastery. If that is not possible, anywhere you you stay can be a place to cultivate yourself. Now, the problem is that because there are so many kind of distractions in the real world, people want to go to uh, mountainside and the monasteries, uh, 
to do the self-cultivation. But then if that really create an entire tradition uh, to be separate from social milieu, then in modern society, that could create a kind of problem, right? Because after all, Buddhist idea is to live together and compassion for other people is a major Buddhist teaching. If you just stay <clears throat> away from society and other people in a secluded space, how, how can you help other people? Right? So this is something that Buddhist community, uh, Buddhist teachers and uh, need to clarify to those uh, people who want to learn about Buddhism that the, and the practice Buddhism, right? So Buddhism is not just to kind of go to the secluded place or quiet place and then kind of meditate all by yourself, even though that perhaps could be the best way to practice. Um, and then Buddhism's engagement with the society, perhaps different people have a different position on this, but my position is definitely, uh, yes, Buddhism needed to get engaged with society and Buddhist teaching from the time of the Buddha really says that this, right? The two wings of Buddhism is wisdom and compassion. You are all connected with other people and then you should help other people, exercise your compassion for other people, which means that you should actually engage with the social issues. And the Minjung Buddhism you just mentioned is one of the special cases that the Korean Buddhists in the 1970s and 80s, when Korea was under the military dictatorship, tried to really make Zen Buddhism uh, as a part of a social uh, theory and try to kind of engage, socially engage with, uh, you know, create a Buddhist doctrines that are socially engaged. One problem with Minjung Buddhism was that uh, the major figures in, the, in this tradition, in this uh, group, were kind of Marxist, and some of their writings have a heavily Marxist tone, and that didn't uh, work very well with some people, or many people, who, who like the Buddhism. So that was a problem. But if we, you do not go that much extreme situation, I think Minjung Buddhism or Buddhist social engagement is absolutely necessary in, in modern time. I mean, this is the issue that emerged because of modernity, right? It, we live in a secular world where religious values are evaluated in the secular context, which means that the religion should be able to directly get engaged with the social issues. Yes, well, on the topic of secularism and religion, you write that secular education helps us to attain knowledge, whereas for Europe, religious education, which she repeatedly emphasized, helps us to attain awakening. And being awake means that you have established the foundation of your thought and are not manipulated by your circumstances. So religion for Irop is a way to discover the basis of human existence. And one of the bases of existence in Buddhist thought, as you mentioned, is expressed in the doctrine of dependent co-arising, according to which the self is not a fixed and permanent entity, but is rather constantly being created anew through interactions. Could you elaborate on this doctrine of dependent co-arising? Sure, that is a fundamental Buddhist teaching, right? So Buddhist worldview says that uh, in the world, nothing in the world 
has a permanent independent essence. What it means is that we all exist because of our uh, kind of a relational identity. And this relational identity is not just a kind of I am my, my mother's daughter, that kind of relationship, but it's even more fundamental. For example, before I mentioned about like uh, eating a breakfast, right? So if you ha- had a coffee and an, and an egg for your breakfast, you don't think you are coffee, you don't think you are milk, right? Or you don't think you are an egg. But then by eating them, your body maintains uh, its physicality, right? You get the nutrition out of it. In other words, we constantly maintain ourselves by with the interaction with those things which we do not consider ourselves, right? Non-self. Self and non-self work together. And same is the case with our thinking. We don't have any thinking that was originally uh, planted in our brain or something like that. Our thinking and our mental activity is constantly interacting with what we see, what we hear, and what we um, the feel, what we touch, and so on and so forth. So this kind of relational identity, the identity is always constantly being constructed through the experiences that we have with the external world. Right? And that is the idea of the self in Buddhism. Because our self is constantly being created, Buddhism calls it no self. No self does not mean that you do not exist. No self simply means that one does not have permanent independent essence as a self. So there is no me-ness, right? Essence of me. The essence of me is being constant, uh, constantly created. And if we, we look at the world from this perspective, my relationship, my identity is always related to other people. And that is why we are all interconnected. Right? Yes, to Irop, the meaning of Buddhist teaching lies in liberating the self from the boundaries imposed on it. You write that the source of bondage may be social or biological, or it may be merely illusory. But Buddhist practice is a way to find the self that is aware of these bonds and to liberate itself from them. And one of the strategies for effecting such a liberation that Europe so effectively employs is that of writing. And I would like to conclude this conversation by talking a little bit about writing. You pose, again, some highly relevant questions concerning the effectiveness of writing as a strategy for social engagement. One might ask, you write, whether writing about women's lives suffices to challenge the patriarchal reality and gender discrimination. Can the imprinting of a life in writing suffice to challenge the hard reality of gender discrimination in society? Can writing even be considered an act of revolt? But you note here as well that the kind of writing here in question is, as we have been discussing, a form of narrative philosophy that specifically centers women and their love lives. Why does Iro choose in her late writings to center these love stories? Well, that's a good question. Um, why did she go back to that the story? I wondered about that because um, think about this. She published this uh, uh, Reflections of uh, Jan Nunn in 1960. And by 1960, Iryo was uh, in her 60s, and she was very respected, well-known uh, Jan Bester in Korean society. 
why would, would you go back to this painful experiences of uh, the love failed, the quote unquote failed love story, right? Uh, I think it's uh, her way of uh, uh, reconcile with life. It's one's effort to, to find the meaning of uh, one's existence. But there are a number of uh, occasions in life that we cannot figure out why it happened. What did I do wrong? That's usually what we ask. Right? But it's not an issue of what did I do wrong, but what would then, what's the meaning of that event in my life? Now I look back. And I think that's, uh, that was Kimidab's kind of uh, uh, the attitude at this point in her 60s. And um, so it's 1960, she died in 1971, so just about 10 years before her death. Uh, she go back to the things that happened in 1928, right? Uh, so in a way there are, but at the same time, not only love story, but the story with her father, story of her sisters, siblings. So there are like major events in her life, whether joyful or painful. And she kind of reflect upon those experiences and begin to make sense of it, right? What she learned, how she reacted, and, and so on and so forth. So writing is a way of witnessing, right? So for an individual to write about your life is really to witness your existence. Our daily existence just to kind of pass away, just so we do this today and then it's forgotten. But by writing it down, you make that experience as something actually happened in your life, something that has meaning, however meaningful, however marginal it might be. But then our life has all these kind of marginal things and putting them together, we create a meaning. Indeed. And that's exactly what I attempted to do with the opening, the monograph that I wrote that I've now mentioned a few times. Europe mm -hmm. tells us that by telling the story of your life and other people's lives, your writing becomes a kind of testimony to your existence. And I think, Dr. Park, that you summarize this very well in a passage toward the end of your book, Women in Buddhist Philosophy, when you write, Over the priority of logic and rationality dominating the modern Western philosophical tradition, women's philosophy and Buddhist philosophy show the potential to create philosophy from lived experience and to philosophize about that experience through narrative. Narrative philosophy, or the philosophy of life, reveals the production of meaning as experience rather than a process of molding our experiences through pre-constructed concepts or structures. In this sense, women's philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, and women's Buddhist philosophy all demonstrate the limitations of the dominant philosophical trends that are based on rigid logic and rationality. I have drawn stark contrasts between the Eastern and the Western modes of philosophizing, as well as female and male ones, and identified narrative and lived experience as opposite to logic and rationality. However, the Western philosophical traditions do not lack philosophers who emphasize that lived experience and narrative are the paths philosophy should follow. So who, Professor, by way of conclusion, are some of these philosophers that you have in mind here? Oh, yeah. So, for example, you, you know, Confession or Rousseau. And then 
uh, mostly uh, Jacques Derrida. And if you look at, he is an interesting case because uh, on surface it doesn't show, but then I I say somewhere else. Uh, but my belief is that all his entire philosophical system is based on his experience as a Jewish boy. So I think, yeah. Some narrative philosophy is uh, explicitly narrative, like the case of Gimidiyat, but other cases, uh, not like that. But I believe all philosophy is, after all, based on one's experience, right? Whether visible or invisible. Well, what else would it be based on? <laughs> right, exactly. What else, if not uh, your own experience? I thank you, Dr. Park, for raising such important challenges for philosophy and for writing so beautifully and brilliantly about how women in Buddhist philosophy can show us ways in which we might meet those challenges. I thought it might be appropriate to end today's podcast with the words of Kim Irop herself. And so I requested that you prepare maybe one of your favorite passages from uh, Kim Irop and read it first in Korean so that we can get as close to her own voice as possible and then secondly for the listeners a translation in English. Okay, sure. Yes. So I I chose a short passage from first essay in the Reflections of Janvers Nun. It is titled Life. Inseng, life. 나는 상기 상멸의 내면적 존재로 상기는 현실 상멸은 내적 본질, 곧 창조성인데 이 양면을 합치시킨 것이다. 성불, 이곳, 성인간이다. Humans are beings with a thought that are constantly arising and ceasing. The arising of thought constitutes the factual reality, whereas the cessation of thought constitutes the inner reality of the self, which is creativity. The I refers to the unity of the two. To become a Buddha means to become a human being.